I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. And today's show is sponsored by Sun Powered Yachts, because there are just so many benefits of solar power. It's clean, quiet, and provides abundant power. Today's panels are so much more efficient than ever that if you already have panels, you might want to think about upgrading. And if you're in the market for new panels, solar controllers, wiring, other solar gear, or if you just want somebody to talk to about installations and upgrades, you really need to reach out to Lyle and Katie at Sun Powered Yachts. They know solar. And as sailors themselves, they cater to the boating community. Now, I met Katie and Lyle a number of years back at the Richmond Boat Show. I had Katie on the podcast way back on episode 10. And after talking to them, I knew that when I needed panels for Dovka, I was going to reach out to them. And recently, I installed two beautiful Maxion 415-watt panels from Sun Powered Yachts, and they provide all the power I need with peace and quiet. I don't have to run the engine nearly as much as I used to. And I was able to pick up panels in Hayward, California. Any listeners in the Bay Area can save a bundle on shipping by doing the same. So find out more, order your own panels at sunpoweredyachts.com. Okay, this week, I'm talking with Isabel Lardner, also known as Izzy, She's a relative of a friend of mine here in San Francisco, and she's done something I've always dreamed of doing, which is sailing many miles at sea on tall ships. For all the sailing I've done, I've never been offshore on a tall ship, and I'm still fascinated by them. So I wanted to talk to Izzy to hear more about her experience, what it's like living aboard and working aboard a tall ship, her interest in writing, journalism, marine biology, and sailing also mirror my own passion. So it was a really fun conversation. Here we go. My name is Isabel Lardner. Um, I am a sailor, a deckhand on a number of different tall ships, uh, mostly in the educational field, but I've worked on a day sailor as well. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to chatting with you. Yeah, me too. And we actually know each other through a mutual friend. Well, you are related to a friend of mine yes. in San Francisco. And he said, you need to talk <laughs> Izzy. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you. And as I told you before, when we chatted briefly, um, sailing on a tall ship has always been a dream of mine since I was a young kid. So I'm excited to hear from you the actual in and outs of, of doing that. But how did, first, let's go back. Did you grow up on the water? Did you sail when you were a kid? Sure. So I am from central Connecticut, um, not super close to the water, but the beach is about an hour away. Uh, but I grew up sailing. My grandparents own a tiny, tiny little house on Cape Cod on kind of the outer Cape, pretty far um, away from summer people land. It's kind of like a little shack on the beach or close to the beach. And they have a sunfish, which is essentially a glorified surfboard with a sail. Um, I know it well. I learned to sail on a sunfish in New England. So. Look at that. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. So I grew up 
taking that out in the Cape Cod Bay for years and years with my grandfather and my sister, my younger sister. And then eventually um, by myself, I got confident enough to go out and heavy enough to flip it back over when it capsized. That's um, the key thing. I remember I learned on a little lake. Um, yep. And I remember when my brother was learning to sail, but he was not yet heavy enough to to flip it. So I would flip it on him, and <laughs> swim away, and then he would have to call me back to, to flip it back. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we had some family friends who had another sunfish and we would just sail around and look at the seaweed and saw turtles occasionally. Um, and yeah, that was where I picked it up. I actually, I went to sailing camp for a year, I think maybe two years and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Was not a super social kid. So I was not excited to be, uh, stuck with a bunch of other kids sailing. Now looking back, I would, that sounds like a wonderful way to spend a summer, but um, it was not at that point in my life. So that's how I learned to sail. And then in college, I applied to a study abroad program called Semester, which does 90, 80 or 90 day trips. And they have a couple of ships. They circumnavigate their beautiful schooners. Um, and so I ended up doing a semester study abroad program with them. Uh, sailing from Northern Australia, Darwin, Australia, up through Indonesia, um, wow. through some Australian territories, and then across the Indian Ocean to Mauritius and South Africa. So that was that was my kind of uh, adventure into the world of liveaboard sailing and kind of greater distances and tall ships, was, and that has led me where I am today. How was... Um sailing through Indonesia. I've traveled, I've backpacked through Indonesia. My wife and I spent a, a, a good amount of time doing that. And it's such a fascinating place because there's so many yeah. islands and they're all so different from each other. I always, it always struck me as a, just a wonderful place to, to someday go back to and sail through. Yeah. I mean, I would highly recommend it is it, as it was kind of my introduction, I sort of don't can't really speak to the technicality of all of it and charting and navigation and all of that stuff. But definitely, as far as adventure goes, it's a beautiful, beautiful place uh, to be. And yeah, we stopped in a lot of different places. We got to see some very um, off the beaten track corners of the world there. Hmm. Um, were there any so that was, concerns? Yeah. I mean, you guys were on a bigger boat, so that, I guess it's a little. Yeah. I mean, there are always security concerns, especially when you have a large group of young students. Um, you want to be super careful. But we, I mean, there's no point where I felt unsafe from a security perspective. It was, we kept, we had someone on watch or on the ship 24-7. So uh, students would stand an hour anchor watch overnight, kind of keeping an eye out for people coming to check out the boat. It's a rare sight to see a boat that big um, in a lot of these ports. So yeah, we kept a watch and, you know, we're very careful and thoughtful about how we engaged with the local community. But because of those precautions, I never felt unsafe. For yeah, yeah. So that must have been a positive experience if it led you to more sailing. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience, both from the sailing side and from the, the science and environmental studies side of it. Um, so after that, that was my sophomore fall semester of college. And I went back to school. I uh, added uh, some classes in an area of study in environmental science, did some oceanography classes, that kind of thing. And then COVID came. 
Mm. And I spent a year fully remote doing school. So in on Zoom all day, every day. Oh gosh, how different from being out there in the world on a sailing yes. ship studying. So, so brutal for everybody. And I was so lucky that I got to go abroad before uh, before that happened. So that was a tough year. And I decided at the end of it that, you know, I spent the spring applying to some internships and looking for some jobs that were going to, uh, that would also have been on Zoom because COVID was still in full swing. And at the end of the year, I in May, I decided, you know what, I don't think it's the right choice to uh, go home and sit in my bedroom and be on Zoom again for the whole summer. I think I would like to work on a sailboat and make a little bit of money and have some fun and be outside all day. And so I applied to a bunch of different boats just using the Tall Ships America um, billet bank. I, I'm sure any Tall Ships people will know what that is. Um, and I had a couple of interviews, talked to a lot of really wonderful people, and ended up working on the tall ship Windy in Chicago for the summer, hmm. um, which is not your typical, I mean, obviously it's freshwater sailing, it's in a lake, it's kind of a tourist, it's a day sailor, so they take people out who are just for brief uh, little, I don't know, chances to see the Chicago skyline, but I had a great crew and a great captain and I learned so much from being there and it totally felt, it was the, absolutely the right decision to be outside and kind of do something with my hands and gain, gain some physical skills instead of um, doing a Zoom internship or a Zoom job for the summer. And then I went so back to So tell me school. how it was different than doing longer passages. What were the- Absolutely. Um, I think the mental- side of it is was the most different thing obviously all the hard skills of the handling of the sails and how the boat steers and all of those things are pretty similar but you get to you know the ship is still when you sleep overnight it, you're on the dock you get to go to the grocery store you get to go to the library you kind of like are still a member of mm. normal society which in a way that you're not when you're doing long overnight passages maybe you can speak to that as well um, with your sailing yeah, no, that's that's interesting. But you still get to go out daily, and you still are part of a crew. I'd imagine that yes. becomes pretty close knit. Absolutely, yeah, I absolutely love my crewmates from that experience, and I still keep in touch and see them pretty often. So, yeah, and so then, then what was next? I interrupted. Then no, no worries. Um, then I went back to school for my senior year and graduated and with the study with environmental studies right so yes so i studied my major was uh creative writing in a kind of a journalism track um and then with the environmental studies uh minor and like other concentration um in oceanography and marine biology and eventually what i hope to do with that in the future is to do some kind of science communication kind of environmental journalism and photography See, that was another reason we had to talk because <laughs> <laughs> that's the world that i've been in yeah yeah um yeah i would love to get more into that but yeah so i graduated with that degree um took the summer to travel and kind of be at home with my family i hadn't been home in a long time um, my, this is maybe a detour from sailing, but my younger sister is very cool. She goes to school in Jordan in the Middle East. Um, she's on this crazy exchange program. And so I traveled there with her, um, to kind of bring her there. And that was really wonderful. And then I came 
back at the end of the summer and had a job waiting for me with the Sea Education Association, which is another um, college study abroad program aboard tall ships. There aren't many of them, but I've managed to uh, have my finger in all of the di- all of the different programs. <laughs> that one's called. Say the name of that one again. It's the Sea Education Association. Sea oh, Education Association. Okay. Yep. Um, it's based in Woods Hole. It is closely, you know, very friendly, closely tied to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, but they're not mm-hmm. the same. I run into people who think they're, you know, part divisions of the same thing and they're, they are separate, but um, it is, of course, benefits greatly from being in such a center of ocean science on the East Coast. Yeah. And what, for anybody who hasn't been there, and I imagine a lot of listeners, since this is mainly a West Coast podcast, haven't. Absolutely. It's, it's such a magical little place, Woods Hole, a little uh, harbor uh, there in Massachusetts. It's yep. a special place. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, so SEA's campus. So I worked for SEA as a program assistant, which uh, entailed being kind of an RA academic support figure while the students were in their shore component. They do a six week uh, shore component in Woods Hole. Uh, doing intensive academics and preparing the projects that they're going to research when they're at sea. And then they move mm-hmm. to the ship uh, for their second six-week component of their program and do whatever voyage that they were planning to do. So I lived on shore with my students, uh, went to a lot of their classes, helped them through navigate a lot of the difficulties of being away from home and preparing for a pretty intense uh, voyage at sea. And then flew to San Diego with them at the end of the shore component and boarded the Robert C. Siemens, which is one of SEA's two ships, and sailed from San Diego to through French Polynesia to Tahiti. Wow. So it's a little bit, I'm so many questions. Yeah. Love to hear a little bit about the science that the students, the projects, what kind of diversity of projects they were doing. But before we get to that, tell me about the Robert Siemens. Uh, the Robert C. Siemens, is that what you said? The Robert C. Siemens, yes. Uh, abbreviated in many ways, Siemens, the Bobby C., any uh, <laughs> any affectionate little name. To those people. who know and love her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to anyone who spent more than a day aboard. Um, yes, she is a brigantine. I believe, I may be incorrect on this number, but I believe she's 134 feet. Um, so not huge. She carries 40 people maximum and we sailed with 39. So it was definitely a tight squeeze for a long time, but an incredible community, uh, results from that kind of conditions. Uh, yeah, we stand, you can let me know what kind of details you want or don't want, but we stand six hour watches every 18 hours. So, which is actually pretty cushy because you get a full 12 hour uh, like space to be able to sleep, which is mm. unusual in the world of seafaring. Um, and yeah, they stand watch with a mate and a scientist, a couple of deckhands and a couple of students. And they, the students do everything. They, it really, the program really emphasizes that they are members of the crew. They're not just on a cruise, uh, to have their every need tended to They are They really have to work in order to keep their place. Um, what an so, experience. yeah, it's incredible. You, yeah. You mentioned before when you were talking, we were talking about how you got into sailing, going to camp and you said, I'm not, I, I wasn't really a social person. Yes. Now, the social aspect of being on a hundred and something foot boat with 40 people, it's got to be pretty intense. Can <laughs> Did you become yeah. a social person? How did you <laughs> deal with that? 
I can, yeah, I can absolutely speak to that. I think the first thing is when I was going to sailing camp, I was much younger and had much less of an understanding of kind of how to manage my, you know, when I need to be by myself and like recharge a little bit. And when I have that extra social energy to expend. So I think definitely growing up is a part of that. I wouldn't say I've become that much more of a social person. Um, I think my experience on boats, the kind of people that I've gotten to meet really makes a difference. So a lot of pretty much all of my crewmates in all of my sailing time have been respectful people who are interested in similar things that I'm interested in, people who read a lot, people who write a lot, people who are like pulling for the team. And that is the kind of person that I do enjoy being around. But I definitely run into difficulty. So aboard Siemens, we spent, we were at sea. We did not set foot on land for 30 days, which was Mm -hmm. the longest time that I had gone. Um, And there were definitely moments in that where, I was pretty sick of everybody and had to kind of go find a little quiet corner somewhere and pretend that I was by myself. Yeah. What do you do when you need that alone time and there is no alone space? Sure. There are the way that the ship is set up. You do have a little bit of quiet and privacy. If you're in your bunk, Um, everybody is kind of feeling these feelings. So time in your bunk is pretty sacred and no one is going to bother you if you're reading or writing or watching a movie or something in there. But when you're kind of awake and around and part of part of the daily activity activities, there's not a lot of respite. I think that the portion of time that you spend on lookout, which is a position that the Coast Guard requires of boats, you have to have a posted lookout keeping an eye out for anything that you might come across. Um, so what SCA does is they send everybody on your watch to like on a rotation to the bow of the ship and you just kind of stand there for half an hour or an hour and keep an eye out for things. Usually you end up looking at the birds or the clouds or whatever. And it's, it's like a very meditative contemplative time. So that helps a lot. There's Um, no crow's nest. There is, there's no crow's nest officially, but you can go aloft. I did go aloft pretty often. That's also a great place to, to spend some alone time. But the problem is, once you have the idea to go aloft, you tell the captain, can I go aloft? You get permission, you go up there. Everybody looks up and they see you up there and they think, oh, that looks pretty cool. I bet the view's pretty good from up there today. <laughs> Suddenly you, you have, have company. <laughs> you have four or five more people up there with you. So <laughs> depending on the day, that can be a good place or it cannot. But yeah. 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 That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Just imagine that's always just been a dream, just hanging out up there. Yeah, it's it's a little scary, I'll be honest, but it's pretty amazing too. Makes wow, you feel very it moves small. quite a bit when you're uh, really at sea and in in the rollers. Yes, yeah, yeah. Even you those are, you are up in the rigging, setting sail and striking sail, and yeah. So SEA actually has a pretty unusual set up for their square sail. So any fore and aft sails that kind of run from the front to the back of the ship can be set on deck. That's true of most ships. Um, A brigantine does have some square sails. And in most cases, you would have to go aloft to climb out and set those or or strike them. But the way SEA has like a pretty unusually designed system so that you can set and strike those sails from from on deck. It Mm -hmm. takes a lot of people, but they have kind of a pulley system where you pull the sails out to the end of the yards and then you can pull them back in. 
I've, I'm not aware of many other tall ships that use that, but I do think it's a safety thing for if they're in rough seas and need to strike sail quickly, they don't want students up there. Um, kind of gathering those, especially students who may only have been on a ship for a week or two at that point. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we do spend a lot of time aloft looking at, you know, doing maintenance and checking things out. Was there a, was there a particular moment or a particular episode in which you found that you just fell in love with the tall ship sailing? <laughs> cumulative. Sure. <clears throat> I think I think I would go back to my time with Seamaster. Uh, the ship that I lived on while I was a student in that program was called Argo. And she, I believe, is in Tahiti right now, still going strong, sailing around the world, um, doing cool stuff. And the first couple of days out, I was so seasick. We had just left Australia. There was like zero sea state. It was flat calm. And I was still sick. And I was like, wow, I think I may have made the wrong choice to go on this program. This is crazy. Seasickness for anyone who's never been seasick is terrible. It really makes you question all of your choices. Um, <laughs> it's the sickness that it won't kill you, but you wish it would. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I haven't, I don't get seasick that much, but those first couple of days were terrible. And I really had no idea what I was doing. And eventually we arrived in Kupang, Indonesia, which is a very tiny little city, uh, definitely not touristy. And it was probably six or seven days after we had set out from Australia. And we got off the ship and kind of took our little dinghy into the shore. We had a day free, a couple hours during the day. So we went and explored, ran around the city, um, made some friends, met some people, visited some, they have beautiful crystal caves where they swim. Um, mm. So had just all around had a wonderful day in a beautiful place and came back to the dock. Everyone was exhausted, waiting there for some of the crew to come and pick us up in, in the dinghy. And we were all just looking at the ship and thinking, wow, that is our home. We live there. And that's pretty cool. The chance to be able to travel with your home and 20 to 30 of your friends and have that kind of community in and see new beautiful places is amazing. So that's the first moment I can think of. Yeah, that that sounds like it was a pretty striking moment. Yeah. So I want to hear some sea stories from Cross Pacific on the Siemens. Tell me, um, what are some that stand out to you? Of course. Well, they always they start, of course, with well, there I was <laughs> at the helm or on the bow. Um, yeah, let's think. The way, I mean, SEA is so good at introducing students to life aboard ships that it actually doesn't feel as dramatically different to live on a ship at sea than to live on land that it than it has in my other sailing experience. Um, so I feel like my adjustment was pretty easy. It was probably a week or two in when I started to kind of grapple with the fact that I would be on the ship with no sight of land, no other people, no connection for at least a few more, you know, three or four more weeks. Um, we didn't have, I have to say we had beautiful weather the whole time. Um, the ITCZ, the Intertropical Convergence Zone is kind of the weather belt that you have to worry about in that area of the Pacific, mm -hmm. sailing south from San Diego. And we had a couple of different voyage plans to 
prepare for, you know, whatever the weather threw our way, but we really hit a great weather window and passed right through that belt. Um, no doldrums? A little bit of doldrums. We motored for a couple of days. Motors, you know, kept sails up for stability and motored along, which is a bummer, especially if you care about <laughs> the quality of your sailing and your sleep. But uh, we made it through. Um, and I think I would say that the uh, the most exciting moment of our trip may have been our equator crossing. And I can't give away the secrets of an equator crossing to anyone that has not experienced one. But I will say that the feeling of being woken up at some crazy hour of the morning, five, six, um, going on deck and finding everybody on the ship awake and happy and in costumes and like really excited. We made hot chocolate. We were sailing across the equator and it really felt a little crazy and a little bit, I don't know, something I never thought I would be able to say I did, but it felt like a big accomplishment. So. You're a showback now. I am. Yes, the antics. Uh, I have never. Well, that's not true. I have crossed the equator once on a on a motorboat in the Galapagos, but uh, I haven't it done counts. a sail on my on my own, which I I hope to do at some point Absolutely. with my children, and we can have all kinds of our own antics. <laughs> Your own little induction ceremony. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. You did creative writing. You yeah. must have been writing about these experiences what are some of the things that have inspired you there is so much to be said for the the reminder of your size when you're out there in the middle of nowhere you feel so small when you look out at the horizon but then you feel so big when you look in at the ship and you realize that you're living a life and you have a community and you're kind of growing and learning and doing all of these things together and it doesn't take very much. I think a lot of what I think about when I'm on a ship is about growth and challenge and community. And so I, I write a lot about community is the only word I can come up with the mm -hmm. kind of relationships that form when you're building them a hundred percent in person. There's no digital interaction at all. You're there's no chance for like miscommunication or, I don't know, misrepresentation of what you're thinking and saying. You're just kind of, you get distilled down to exactly who you are. You pick out the things that you want uh, to be parts of your personality and you can let anything else go. And I think that kind of growth and kind of self-selection is pretty unique. And I, I maybe people like backpackers who spend a lot of time in the wilderness have that experience or travelers who stay away from society with a small group for a long time um, might feel some of that. But I, I do think it's a pretty unique and unusual situation. So I, I have a lot of thoughts on that written down in my journals from my yeah. sailing. I mean, you must get to know the fellow crew members very intensely, very quickly, for better or worse. Absolutely. What kind of challenges did you face I like to explain it to people who've never spent any time to see at, at sea as uh, developing a kind of sibling relationship in a very short amount of time, because you see these people at their best, you see them at their worst, you know what kind of what they take in their coffee, you know what meals they'll be excited for, mm -hmm. you know, kind of which watches they're going to be grumpy on and which they're going to be excited to stand. And 
So you learn, you gather all these facts very quickly. And then you realize like three or four weeks into the trip that you have no idea what their last name is. You have no idea where they're from. You don't know anything beyond what they have told you or kind of what you've observed. And that is a really, that can be a tough thing to come to terms with because you form an opinion of, or like a, an understanding of somebody else very quickly. And then they'll do something that surprises you or it is different. And you realize that there are so many layers to this person. Um, so I think that that can be startling that someone isn't always who they, not in a bad way, but isn't always who your first impression of them was. Mm. Um, but I think the largest problem comes from spending a lot of time together in a very small space that is tough for anybody. So someone may have stepped on your toe or watched before and not noticed, and then you're really mad at them for 12 hours and they don't know why. And then you have to tell them that they stepped on their, your toe and you say, you know, it just becomes small things snowball into big, big issues, but at, at the same time, they resolve very quickly when you talk about it. So interesting. And you're so in the moment, right? You're so focused on what's happening on the ship that, like you said, the, the, where somebody's from, what, what they've done in the past really doesn't matter. It's, I'm, I'm sure it's quite different, but what came to my mind, and I don't have any firsthand experience of this, is people, <laughs> Uh, in the military who are suddenly thrust into a small group and sure. uh, are focused very much on the present. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we face nearly as many challenges as people in that situation, but yes, I do think that kind of community development can be a parallel. The bonds that form must be extremely strong. When you leave the ship, do those ties continue? Absolutely. I mean, without a question, it it's impossible to go on an adventure like this with with a large number of people and not leave with at least a few that you keep in your life. And that's been true for all of my even I even have some friends from the sailing camp that I didn't want to go to that <laughs> I stay in touch with. But yes. And one of the really cool things about the tall ships community is that there aren't that many tall ships in the world. And so people move around between them and you kind of catch wind of each other, hear things through the grapevine, uh, grapevine, and people end up knowing each other, and it's like this small circle. And so your friends become, you hear about their friends, and then their friends become your friends when you move to another ship, and then it's just like a very wonderful, positive, small environment. So yes, you definitely stay in touch with people. So I want to hear about I know you're going sailing again soon. I yes. Your future plans. Are you sailing with some people who you've sailed with in the past? Yeah, I will be sailing with, I, I can think of at least four that were, that I have sailed with in the past. And then definitely a couple more who are friends of friends from similar trips. I think I mentioned one of the tall ships out here, Matthew Turner, and you know, some people who sail on her. I do. I do. I have uh, the steward from the trip that I did in the fall from San Diego to Tahiti is working on Turner right now, as well as one of our students who has worked on ships for two or three years now and really knows her stuff. She's a mate on Seaward, which is also a call of the sea ship. They're docked right next to Turner. Sure. And then, yeah, I, a few of the other crew I know by by name and kind of stories about them. But yeah, they run a, it's a wonderful organization. They run a great program. Well, you're going to have to come out. I know you were out here briefly a couple months yes. ago, and we're going to have to come out and do some sailing out here on the bay, and we'll have to meet up in person. 
I know. I would love to do that. It's the, yeah, San Francisco. I've been a few times in my life and it's a beautiful place. There's always so many sailboats out there when I am there. So I would love to do that. The family is quite unique. So tell us about your, your, um, what you're off to do soon. Yeah, sure. I'm working again for SEA, still in the Pacific on the same ship, the Siemens. I will be flying out to Hawaii in a couple weeks, and we have one short trip called the the program they run is the Pacific Reef Expedition. So it'll be some reef science and surveys and kind of educating the students about biodiversity and climate change and how a warming ocean affects reefs. So that will be really amazing to sail around the islands of Hawaii and see all of those beautiful things. And then that cohort of students will leave us tragically and we receive another group from Woods Hole and that will be uh, kind of a longer trip from Honolulu to Fiji through that program is called Protecting the Phoenix Islands, I believe. Uh, So it's sailing through some of the most protected marine reserves on the planet and doing some science there. So I'm super excited. It should be really, really wonderful. I've not heard of the Phoenix Islands. Tell me about them. I, to be honest, I will be able to tell you more. (laughs) Well, we'll have to do another interview then. Yeah. I would love to. Um, Yeah. From what I know, they have some of the healthiest coral reefs in the world, uh, SEA has not been through there since before COVID, I don't think. So it will be really, I think we'll be doing a little bit of comparing between kind of our knowledge and understanding of the biodiversity before COVID. And then in the past couple of years, uh, we'll kind of have a before and after of climate change and, and warming temperatures to to look at. But I am excited to learn more about the science of it. I do not have personal experience yet with that area myself. So it should wow. be really cool. Exploring reefs that are still healthy, hopefully. Oh, fingers I, be I think we're all a little scared about what we're going to find, but yes, high hopes. I remember when I was at National Geographic, there was an expedition to the Lion Islands. This was probably 15 years ago now, but those are remote and supposedly very healthy. Um, but, yep. but unfortunately, the healthy coral reefs are farther and fewer between. Absolutely. And remoteness is no longer, you know, at one time that meant they were protected because there was less human impact. Now the the whole ocean is changing as a result of anthropogenic activity. So remoteness may not necessarily spell health. You know, as small as we feel when we're out there, there really is no, mo- no, no more such thing as remote. It's true. The world is, is changing, but I can still get out there and explore it because we remote. can. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing some of your tall ship sailing and your adventures and your adventures to come. And um, we, I will follow you and I'm excited Absolutely. to hear updates as to, to how you're doing. Yeah. Thank you, you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's so yeah. wonderful to connect with sailors of all kinds. Podcast is a great way to share some of those stories. If people I want definitely... to get involved in tall sailing, what recommendations would you have? Yeah, for any student, I don't know necessarily who your audience is, but for any students, I would highly recommend both Seamaster and SEA, depending on whether you're kind of more experiential, looking for like a leadership growth activity uh, uh, opportunity or a kind of science hard research opportunity. Definitely check out the two of those um, for anybody looking to kind of work in the industry and get some maritime training or sail handling, sail training 
Uh, Tall Ships America is a great place to start. And anyone that lives in a coastal city probably has a local tall ship or two uh, to check out, volunteer for, learn some, learn the ropes, as they say, and uh, yeah, get a little foothold. Awesome. Thank you, Izzy. Yeah, of course. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at outthegatesailing or email me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. If you want to support the show beyond listening, you can become a patron. Patreon.com forward slash outthegate. I appreciate everybody who's already become a patron. Thank you so much. Until next time, smooth sailing.